Welcome to The Fullness of Truth, a program of Roman Catholic evangelization, catechesis, and apologetics. My name is Timothy O'Keefe. Certainly, one of the most misused and least understood terms in the Christian vocabulary is the term church. Considering the near 30,000 denominations that presently exist, that refer to themselves as a church, the church, or even the true church, confusion as to the actual meaning of this term is only natural. Since the beginning of the Protestant Revolution in 1517, the notion of church has been reduced to near meaninglessness. Christians have claimed that Christ founded not an authoritative, hierarchically organized institution, but rather a sort of spiritual society a religious movement, a fellowship of Bible readers who share a number of pious beliefs. True, the Church is a spiritual society. She is a religious movement, and all Christians should be devoted to reading the Bible. But these ideas are vague and abstract, and in no way do they define certainly not exhaust the actual meaning of the term church as used historically and by Christ and his apostles. The word church literally means a convocation or an assembly. Thus the church is not a building but a people, the people of God, the people of Christ. Yet this definition is still too vague, for the people of Christ have been given by our Lord both a structure and a purpose. The primary purpose of the Church is to give glory to God Almighty. Her more immediate purpose, however, is threefold. It is to teach sanctify and govern the faithful in this world that they might obtain salvation in the world to come. Now to speak in the thorough, clear, and concise language of the Baltimore Catechism. Question. What is the Church? Answer. The Church is the congregation of all those who profess the faith of Christ, partake of the same sacraments, and are governed by their lawful pastors under one visible head. This definition contains five important truths. First, the Church is a congregation. It is people. Yet the word congregation in this case includes both the laity and the clergy, for the clergy are Christians also. Second, the Church professes faith in Christ, 
Christ is the center, the heart of the church. He is her salutary obsession at all times. Therefore, just what she professes about Christ is of the utmost importance. If she fails in this profession, if she falls away from that historical faith for which the saints lived and the martyrs died, then she betrays the essential meaning of the word church. Third, the church partakes of the same seven sacraments. These sacraments comprise her public life of devotion to God. They are, at the same time, the formal expressions of her love for God and of God's love for her. In the sacraments, the Church praises, adores, thanks, and petitions the thrice holy God, who, in turn, bestows supernatural grace upon the faithful according to the depth of their faith and devotion. Fourth, the Church is governed by legitimate authorities, the bishops and priests. The clergy is not a sort of arbitrary aftergrowth of a formerly authority-free religious society. The clergy, rather, is part and parcel of the organization or society which Jesus Christ founded, and they are essential to the Church's sacramental life. And fifth, the laity and the clergy are united under one visible head, the Pope, the successor of St. Peter. Every layperson, religious, deacon, priest, and bishop, if they are to remain members of the Church, must remain in communion with the Pope and accept his authority in both teaching and governing the Church. The Pope is the visible head of the Church on earth, but the invisible head of the entire Church on earth, in purgatory, and in heaven is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Christ is the supreme head of the entire communion of saints, of the entire church. The definition quoted from the Baltimore Catechism explains not only the meaning of the word church, but also the purpose of the church the end for which she was created by our Lord. The general and immediate purpose of the Church is simply to continue the saving work of Jesus Christ until his second coming. The one and only source of salvation for any human being is the atoning death of our Lord upon the cross. There is no other hope or means than this. For the crucifixion entailed not merely the death of a good man, but rather the death of the God-man. Now the saving work of Christ continues. 
in that it still remains to be applied to individuals. All of humanity has been objectively redeemed. Christ's atoning death was more than sufficient to save every single human being. However, what remains is for those who will respond to our Lord to be subjectively redeemed, to personally respond to our Lord's call. This response requires faith, baptism, and fidelity to the gospel. The Church, then, continues the saving work of Christ by applying the fruits of the redemption to individuals. This she does through her teaching and through her sacraments. Christ sent the Church as the Father had sent him. So Jesus said at the Last Supper, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And after the resurrection, he said to his apostles, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now to be more thorough, more specific, the immediate purpose of the Church is threefold. It is to teach, to sanctify, and to govern the faithful. At the Last Supper, Christ provided the unique means by which this teaching would be guided and guarded. It would be not by means of the brilliance of theologians nor the sanctity of saints, but rather by a unique charism given by the Holy Spirit. Thus Jesus said again at the Last Supper, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, He will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. When He comes, the Spirit of truth, He will guide you to all truth. Notice that the Holy Spirit guides the Church so that the Church may guide others with her teaching. Just before his ascension, Jesus gave to the Church her teaching commission. He said, Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When the Church convened for her first council, as recorded in Acts chapter 15. She taught with an extraordinary and unprecedented authority. This council began, It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. This teaching authority given by Christ through the Holy Spirit remains with the Apostolic and Catholic Church from the time of that first council recorded in the book of Acts until the present moment. It can be seen in the pages of Scripture being passed down to the next generations. And so St. Paul wrote to his disciple, St. Titus, Exhort and correct with all 
authority. The key word in this passage is authority, teaching authority. Now, authority comes not from oneself, but from another. It is received. In this case, teaching authority comes from Christ through his church. It does not come merely from reading the Bible over and over, committing it to memory, and then applying to its teaching some personal interpretation. This constitutes knowledge, possibly, but it does not constitute teaching authority. Knowledge, even the vast amount of knowledge that one can gain from Bible reading, does not constitute teaching authority. In order to possess this authority, one must be within the church that Christ directly founded and commissioned and be ordained to teach the gospel. In a word, one must be sent by the historical church, the apostolic and Catholic church. But on the contrary, there are, always have been, and always will be, many false preachers of the gospel who, in spite of their confidence and even popularity, have not been sent by the Church of Christ. St. John wrote the following about these apostate preachers. They went out from us, but they were not really of our number. If they had been, they would have remained with us. Their desertion shows that none of them was of our number. In conclusion, the Catechism teaches at number 888. Bishops, with priests as co-workers, have as their first task to preach the gospel of God to all men in keeping with the Lord's command. They are heralds of faith who draw new disciples to Christ. They are authentic teachers of the apostolic faith endowed with the authority of Christ. The Gospel reading for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time is taken from St. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. John was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they went and saw where Jesus was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. 
he first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. After Jesus had been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and after he had fasted in the Judean wilderness and been tempted by the devil, our Lord returned to the Jordan area. When John saw him, he said to two of his own disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. With pure humility, John relinquished his own followers, his own disciples. The two of them, Andrew and perhaps John, immediately followed Jesus. And when our Lord saw them following him, he asked, What is it you seek? Using the proper title of courtesy, they answered, Rabbi, where are you staying? He responded, Come and see. It was the tenth hour, four o'clock, when Andrew and John found and remained with Jesus. This insignificant gathering was, in fact, the very beginning of the Church, of the Society of Jesus. As St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote in the year 107, Where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is, by her nature, the society that gathers in the presence of Christ. She gathers not merely to remember Christ, nor to recall his works and review his words. For in the Holy Eucharist, Christ truly remains present as he was to Andrew and John two thousand years ago. After staying with Jesus, Andrew went to his brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah. The term Messiah is derived from a Hebrew word meaning anointed one. The term Christ is derived from a Greek word also meaning anointed one. The terms Messiah and Christ both mean anointed one. At number 438, the Catechism teaches, The one who anointed is the Father. The one who was anointed is the Son. And he was anointed with the Spirit who is the anointing. Jesus' eternal messianic consecration was revealed during the time of his earthly life at the moment of his baptism by John when God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, that he might be revealed to Israel as its Messiah. Andrew, from the beginning, identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. Interestingly, this did not earn him any sort of special rank or dignity among the twelve. 
Such was reserved for his brother Simon, who, after professing words similar to Andrew's, would receive a name change from Simon, meaning hearing, to Peter, meaning rock. For Peter would be the rock on which Christ would build his church. And against this one true church, the very powers of hell would not ever, ever prevail. This means that her official teachings will remain untainted by error, and her sacraments will provide a sure and abundant means of the sanctifying grace merited by Christ upon the cross. With this truth and grace, the Church will be armed and able in the millennia-long spiritual war that awaits her and that only intensifies with each passing year. Andrew then brought his brother Simon to Christ. Just as the apparently insignificant gathering of Andrew and John around Jesus comprised the very beginning of the church, so Andrew's apparently insignificant leading of his brother Simon to Christ is the very beginning of the Church's universal mission of evangelization, of leading all peoples to Christ. As the Second Vatican Council stated, the Church on earth is, by its very nature, missionary. The Church, then, from her very origin, is the society gathered around Jesus Christ, which leads others to Jesus Christ. This is her nature and her commission, and it should remain her one passion. Jesus looked deeply and intently at Simon and declared, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. The Greek word for rock is Petros, which has become the English name Peter. But most importantly, Jesus did not speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic, and the word that he used, therefore, was Cephas, not Petros. Notice that Jesus does not at this time change Simon's name. He only refers to this name change in the future, saying, You will be called Cephas. Simon will be named Cephas, that is, Peter in Greek, only when Christ establishes him as the leader of the twelve apostles and by extension of the entire church. It is for this reason because Peter is head of the entire apostolic band, that Peter's name is given first of all in every list given in the New Testament of the apostles' names, even though Andrew and John followed Christ first. Andrew was the first apostle. John was the beloved apostle. But Peter was the head apostle, the rock of the apostolic and Catholic Church.
have been listening to The Fullness of Truth. If you would like a CD copy of this program, please send a donation of any amount and ask for program number 24-7B. If you would like to attend our classes on the Catholic faith or start a new class in your area, please contact The Fullness of Truth Apostolate, P.O. Box, 2301 Westfield, Massachusetts 01086 The phone number is 413-568-2195 The email address The Fullness of Truth Apostolate at Juno.com and the blog The Fullness of Truth Apostolate dot WordPress Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.